This is number two of a series that we're doing this, um, this season. And last week, Dora introduced us to the kingdom of God in relationship to comfort. And that's not, the, uh, that's not the softener, you know, that sort of thing that you put in your, put in your clothes. And it was fantastic. And one of the interesting things was that through, through last week, there was, a, there was a bit of a theme as well that I believe that's been carried through. And people came up and spoke about intimacy. They spoke about God wanting to pour his spirit out and the, the river of God flowing through us. And, and really, I just want to um, continue in that vein because I think that the peace of God in relationship to the kingdom will only come when we're intimate with God. That's how we experience his peace. That's how the world knows that we are truly, truly the disciples of Jesus. And this is going to be out of, um, out of Isaiah. We've been speaking quite a lot out of Isaiah. So I'm going to read um, the, the particular verses that I'm going to be um, um, taking it from, although it's not specifically about that. Just a, just a tiny, tiny little bit about me. Um, you're not going to get um, a great deal of uh, actual stories about my own life here, but I can assure you that a lot of the ingredients of the things that I'm going to share with you have come as a result of things that God has taught me over the last five or six years in quite difficult family circumstances, which are far from over, but he has been faithful the church has been incredibly supportive. And, you know, the fact is that I think I would have found it very, very difficult uh, without knowing that both the comfort, the peace of God, the encouragement of the believers. And it's just been a journey. It's not one that I would have wanted to have gone on, to be frank with you, those that you know me. But it's, it's where it is, and God hasn't finished far from it. Anyway, so um, we're going to look at, uh, um, we're looking at uh, Kingdom of Peace and um, I want to say to you, first of all, shalom, because shalom is an all-inclusive word meaning peace, prosperity, and well-being. And the best we've got in England is, hi, how you doing? So, <laughs> so, this, so I, I, I think that's great. And actually, a lot of other cultures have got much, much better ways of saying, of, of making greetings. You know, it's just that you know, the British culture just somehow hasn't quite got there yet. So let's have a quick, very, very, very quick overview of Isaiah. I'm going to read this as, um, as a kind of a more contemporary overview of the whole of Isaiah. And you're going to think, oh my goodness me, what's he going to go? Well, I'm going to go for it, okay? So the prophet Isaiah addressed the kingdom of Judah for 40 years. Isaiah maintains an international perspective throughout his book, revealing that Israel's life is bound up with the affairs of the broader world. Isaiah urges the people to care for the poor and needy, to commit to follow the pattern of God's ways, to pursue social and economic justice. And in typical prophetic ways, he speaks of coming judgment because of Israel's failure, but also of promised restoration and moving from Israel to the wider world. God's correction is in the service of renewal. Ayer's later oracles introduce the complex figure of the servant, that's Jesus, whose personal sacrifice brings healing, amongst other things. These servant songs fit into the bigger picture of Israel's return from exile, the Lord's return to his people, and the nation's turning to God. The New Testament writers will return to Isaiah often to explain how Israel's ancient commission to bring blessing to the world was fulfilled. So it's just a big snapshot. There's over 60 chapters in Isaiah, but it's really helpful. And I'm just going to read these few verses from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. 
And I've got a real privilege of saying these verses. These are the verses that Jesus spoke about himself and basically blew everybody out of the water at that time. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair, they will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. When these words were spoken, the Holy Spirit at that point had not come, although clearly the Spirit of God did speak and others who were not prophets were clearly in relationship with God. And we see this throughout the Old, um, we see this, uh, throughout the Old Testament along with remarkable miracles and powerful evidence of God working outside of the natural order of his human creation. So at that time, God spoke through prophets and then priests. So what was it that they knew about God that enabled them to speak with such authority and intimacy and unwavering certainty that God had spoken to them? I believe one of the Bible's most referred to verses in the Bible, okay, so one of the Bible's most referred to verses in the Bible is the key, and it gives us real insight into the character and nature of God that is not only central to how we should live, but why we should live. And it echoes right into our modern times. And it's Exodus 34, verses 4 to 7. You might have been hoping that it would be a New Testament verse, but it's an Old Testament verse. So Moses chiselled out two tablets of stone like the first ones. Early in the morning, he climbed Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him. And he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, because that's his name. Yahweh the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And there's a bit which I didn't really want to read, but I'm going to have to because it's part of it. It says, but I do not excuse the guilty. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children and grandchildren. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations. Not really going to touch on that bit, but you're getting the sense of what God's saying about who he is. And he's got a name, you know. Andy didn't introduce me and said, here's a bloke. He introduced me by name. You all know each other by names. That's the intimacy with which God wants to engage with us. This is the God of order who plans for us, who never changes and who made the universe. And instead of giving Moses a blueprint or a series of bullet points, he comes in a cloud, something that surrounds you and is kind of really difficult to describe. And it reveals what kind of intimate God he is and always will be. This is who God is. It's the name, same God that we worship today. In fact, it's the same God that we worshipped 
and are worshipping right now because I hope that God is going to be ministering to you in his own way throughout this time. The God who chose to rescue his rebellious children through a one of sacrifice of flesh and blood which was necessary so that we can today enter into his presence without the need for a priest. And Jesus fleshed this out as he walked alongside his own creation so that it was once again possible to be connected directly to a God who was not abstract or distant or only spoken of with caution, but a God who could be called Abba, Daddy or Father or Papa or whatever your personal name is for a father. And he is an international cross-cultural, multilingual, never sleeping, always loving, never stopping caring for, forever comforting, passionately for you, outrageously joyful, totally for you, God. Let's go back to the topic of peace. What is peace? That the world, as the world describes it, well, here's one description, and there are many. I pinged it straight out of kind of Google, right? So, but there's loads of stuff out there. Peace is a stress-free state of security and calmness that comes when there's no fighting or war, everything coexisting in perfect harmony and freedom. When you feel at peace with yourself, you're content to be the person you are, flaws and everything. I'm sure you could come up with your own description. Um, The problem is, as we all know, that real peace starts from the inside. And whatever you try to fix externally will never truly bring peace. And that's because, unfortunately, our selfish and greedy nature Wars, conflicts, famine, hunger, poverty, social divide, religious conflict and disagreement, economic instability will not go away. The whole of the scriptures have the thread of what the kingdom of God is like. And for thousands of years, the Jews waited and watched eagerly for the Messiah, who we now know as Jesus, to come. But even then, even in that anticipation, they were surprised because when he did come, They were expecting a warrior king to rule the kingdom at a time when the Romans had dominion over Israel. They were disappointed. He came with a completely different agenda. Isaiah 9, verse 6, foretells the coming of Jesus thousands of years before. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And what will he be called? Wonderful counsellor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. The peace of the kingdom of God is born out of relationship and intimacy with our creator God through Jesus Christ. This works from the inside out and not the outside in. So he designed us to live in harmony with him and although that relationship was broken as a result of our self-determining ways and we were separated from God, we have been given a way back. God implemented a rescue plan that meant he would come down to earth himself, take the punishment we deserved for our self-reliance upon himself. The man God, Jesus Christ, the one and only son of the living God, became the sacrificial lamb and was crucified. He died and then in coming back to life again, he defeated the very power of death that is sin itself so that we could once again be reconnected directly to our author and creator. But it went much better went one better than that. He left his Holy Spirit as a guarantor, as an imprint. So we no longer have to deal with the priests and prophets or offer sacrifices. 
aren't you glad that you do not have to take a yearly sacrifice to a temple and have it offered on your behalf so that you and your household can be free of sin and cleansed before God? Although Duncan might be happy to go out there and shoot it for you. <laughs> Perhaps I shouldn't say too much of that. <laughs> um, anyway, I didn't think that one would go down too well. Um, and that's why, that's why we shared communion last week. That's why the contemporary Christians share communion. It's a modern meme or, or memory uh, to never forget what it cost our Father to reunite us. He's desperate for our friendship, intimacy, and will not stop at anything to be with us, even to the point of sacrificing his own son. And this is well illustrated, one of, for me, one of the most powerful parables that Jesus shared, and it tells us much about who he is. Um, so I wanted just to very, very briefly look at it, um, partly because I think parenting is such a challenge in our culture and society. And society is almost wanting to remove God's influence from our lives and replace it with just things. So we need to know God's heart to know how to address these things from God's kingdom peace. In Luke, um, in Luke 15, verses 11 to 32, um, Jesus tells a story about the lost son. Um, you may know it as, a, as another, another heading, the, the, the story of the prodigal son. But for me, it's the lost son. And, and it's, um, it's for all, really, it's a story about all of those who have, entered into God's pre- have not entered into God's presence or accepted him and are basically in rebellion. Because if you're not for God, then you're in rebellion to God. It's not, it's not a nice word, but that's the nature of, of how God sees things when we're not connected with him. So I won't read the story because I just simply is not enough time. But the father in this story represents God. Firstly, the father then is told by his son, he's got two sons and they have a big farm and they have land and everything. And uh, the father is told by the younger son, basically, um, Dad, I wish you were dead. Um, All I want is my inheritance money now. Um, He's no regard for his father's feelings or his father's loss emotionally or anything like that. It's all about him. And the story goes... Uh, the son goes off and um, squanders all his wealth on reckless living and um, it kind of it, it strikes home the reality of what we are like in our unredeemed condition of rebellion. Uh, and eventually when the son has, uh, has lost everything, he comes to his senses and uh, the only option he's really got is to come back. But he's probably expecting what you and I might expect and that is the sort of shame and humiliation of having sort of done what he thought was, you know, in his own interest, and then it all went sort of badly, all went belly up, all went wrong. And maybe his father would say, oh, I told you so, or what were you thinking, or why wouldn't you listen to me, etc., etc. I guarantee that we've all probably been there on one side of that story or the other. But here is God's astounding response in that story. And think about it for you personally or for others. Firstly, he does not judge in any way, or make accusations or put him down. He doesn't even ask him to repent or say sorry. His love is so overwhelming that his thoughts were only about what he will do when the son returns, hoping he will and looking constantly for him every day. And that is God's default position with you and I, constantly looking for us where we are, how he can come alongside us. He's looking for his children, that's you and me. But he's especially looking for the lost, 
the poor, the brokenhearted and the downtrodden. He knows about emotions. He knows how tough it is. And then he does something extraordinary in the culture, in the story. He hugs him. Actually, I think he overwhelms him. I don't think he just goes, oh, you know. I think he overwhelms him. It's not a very cultural thing to do in those days. But it was part of God being so lavish with his love and affection. And then he reinstates him. And it's as though nothing has ever happened. And they have a fantastic party. Uh, and I believe Jesus told this story, and there are many other reasons for it, I'm sure. But I believe Jesus told this story because he knew how judgmental the hearts of human beings are. And that is shown by the reaction of the older brother, not least of all because the older one now would have to share his inheritance again, which he was going to get all of it, but not anymore. But also to show how much he desires relationship and intimacy. I believe it's so important to be in a place of genuine intimacy with God. Why? Because when you've been made redundant and you lose your job and income, when finances are tough, the debt collectors are at your door, when a loved one dies, when anger and violence breaks out in your family, when a long-term relationship falls apart or you're betrayed, when you've experienced injustice, when your country disintegrates into civil war, when friends reject you, when your kids disown you, your emotions will not leave you in a state of peace. So unless you are standing on and in someone who never changes, who is always available, who will never abandon you, who never judges, who understands everything about you and your situation, knows exactly what to say and how to comfort and bring you to a place of peace, even and especially in the war that's going on all around you, you will either fall apart, give up, get depressed, or have to accept it. And that's when you need inner peace. Kingdom peace comes from our personal intimacy with God, from knowing him and going on knowing him, just like a good marriage, always more to discover. It's an intriguing thing. That, how long does it take for a marriage ceremony, the actual legal bit, to take place? A couple of minutes? A couple of minutes. And then, but it's a lifetime of growing together, isn't it? And we give our lives to Jesus, and Jesus accepts us, but then it's a lifetime of relationship. And I believe it's exactly like that with God, and that's the way he intended it to be. And in this case, God takes his bride, the church, or imagine it's you, and he says, now that you've chosen to spend your life with me, let me hold your arm, let me, let's walk together. Just like the bride and the groom walk down the aisle together. You know, one doesn't go behind the other, they go down together, joined arm in arm at the beginning of this journey. It's like, I don't want you to miss out on anything, he says. There's so much I want to share with you, and he could go on. It's how we trust God, even though we don't know the outcome, just like a marriage that makes a relationship so vibrant, or should make a relationship so vibrant. Peace replaces fear and anxiety and uncertainty. It encourages faith, it overcomes doubt, and even though the future might be unknown, provides a certainty of hope. These are characteristics of the kingdom and are threaded throughout the Bible. The story should inspire us to want to know more of God as he wants more for us. How long have I got, Andy? Five minutes. Okay, so I'm just going to give a couple of brief examples of where I believe God um, is intimate 
with people and it reveals the peace that they were and the intimacy that they had with God, um, the obedience and courage and trust and glory they had as God. David and Goliath, okay? It's not just a kid's story. David displays remarkable fearlessness and fear is the enemy of faith and trust is developed in relationship. He knew his God and seemed totally at peace as he faces this giant But he basically says to Goliath, standing there with his little slingshot and Goliath there with his enormous sword, you don't stand a chance. It's not me you're fighting, but the living God. He was so intimate with God and spent so much time during his training and discipling in the wild when he was looking after the sheep, fighting off the bear and the lion. And he was so reliant on God that he knew that God would do what he knew he couldn't. Daniel Daniel's obedience to God over his allegiance to the king and the edict that was made. He refused to bow down to idols. There are plenty of them around today still. And God not only miraculously rescues him, but increases his authority and and he becomes a mover and shaker in the following Persian empire. An upright politician who loves God. We could do with a few of them. But it was intimacy with God that led him down that path, and he was a man who got down on his hands and knees. And lastly, Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now, what would you do, um, ladies, if um, in that culture, um, if you were pregnant and you weren't married, you were going to be stoned, either for committing adultery, because it was outside, um, outside of marriage, Um, And to make it even more complicated, she was betrothed to be married and told, and then told by an angel, okay, that's a bit of a bit of a tricky one, um, that she's going to have God's child. I think she was frightened. It says she was frightened. But she listened and waited to the messenger, and here is her response. It blows me away. Just absolutely astonishing. May your word to me be fulfilled. No, never mind the consequences. I mean, I'd be thinking about all the things that are likely to happen. It's amazing. It's both courageous, it's full of faith, bearing in mind what could have happened to her. Yes, she was frightened, but God's words were sufficient. An amazing response. You have to be at peace to be able to respond as she did and not react. And that points to intimacy with God. And apart from Jesus who was both perfect, because these others weren't. Jesus defied the religious lawmakers and continued to do miracles and tell and show people what the kingdom looked like. And he did it out of a place of peace, because he was so connected with his father. He often preached and then gave a demonstration of his father's power, even when he was told not to. In Luke 22, we see him in the garden towards the end of his earthly life, And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, who was sadly let down and kind of abandoned by his closest friends at that point, reached out to his father one last time to ask if it was possible that there was another way of carrying out the rescue plan. Abba, Father, he cried out. What was the answer? Well, there was no answer from his father other than he sent him an angel to strengthen him. In other words... Sorry, son, we have to go through this. This is the plan, and it is what it is. It's the only way. Take courage. And he understood and knew exactly what was going to happen, which most of us often don't. 
that he was going to go to the cross, it was going to be unbelievably painful, not just physically, but emotionally, and in all ways, carrying the full weight of the sin of mankind. And that's what he'd have to endure. The pressure, in fact, was so enormous that it says that his sweat was like drops of blood. And yet there in the midst was peace and intimacy, even though destruction and mayhem was about to be let loose. Jesus often spoke of peace in many different situations and in, or implied how important it was. In the storm in Matthew, in Mark chapter 439, he's asleep on the boat and a terrible storm comes up that wouldn't have normally happened on that particular lake uh, or sea, it was so big. And Jesus is asleep, the disciples are absolutely terrified and he gives them a lesson, he teaches them. He, he wakes up, they wake up, look, can't you see what's happening? And Jesus speaks peace to the storm. And he teaches his disciples about faith in the light of their fear and that they should be taking the authority that's been given to them. He uses peace in healing in Luke 8, chapter 43. There was a woman that came to Jesus and she'd been bleeding for, for many, many years. And she didn't speak to Jesus, she just touched him and power went from him. And at the end of that little uh, dialogue where his disciples said, well, look, you know, there's thousands of people here, how do you know which one it was? He said to the woman, he said, daughter, your faith has healed you, go in peace. He used it in salvation, Luke 7.50, the woman who cleaned Jesus' feet, the sinful woman, she dried, she, I mean, she, she, her tears washed Jesus' filthy feet, because he, that's what it was like in those days. She dried them with her hair, she broke an expensive jar of a nard or perfume onto his feet, and everybody was judging you know, this is a sinful woman, what are you letting her do? And it's so often the women in the Bible that are you know, just heroes of faith. You know, the men are kind of like cynical and judgmental. I say that because I'm a guy, so it's, you know, I feel like I can say it. And, um, but Jesus used it as another opportunity to teach them how they needed to understand what the kingdom was like. The woman repented, not with words, but with her actions. She never prayed the sinner's prayer. You know, guess what, guys? There's lots of ways of coming into the kingdom. All right? And at the end, he simply says to her, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. And he used it to release people from spiritual, mental, and emotional troubles. Uh, the guy that was uh, demonized and Jesus cast them all out into the pigs and they all went off. And the guy was at peace. So, you know, spiritual warfare took place in that. And he used it on mission. I use this as sort of in, in closing almost. Um, um, when Jesus sent out the 12 at one point, he said, let your peace rest on, rest on a place, or if it uh, returns to you, then walk away. And so he, he wanted to bring peace into towns and into the places where they were sent out on missions. So when you start looking to see how much of a gift peace is, and it's one that is not just for us, for personal peace, but it's so important that we carry it wherever we go, and let it rest wherever it is welcome. And it can open doors to conversation, opportunity for prayer, healing and setting people free. It's a characteristic that people desire in a world that is troubled. So as we pray in a moment, be open to both receiving God's peace, and I hope you've been open to hearing some of the things that God's been saying to you as, um, as some of these words have been spoken. Um, that um, whatever you personally are facing or whatever you might know that other people are facing, 
Keep on letting his peace be upon you and praying for others as well so that they might reap the benefit. It's a reflection of our relationship and intimacy and our Heavenly Father and it's a part of the church of Jesus' mission to our friends, family, colleagues, neighbours, towns and beyond into the world. Shall we pray together? Father, thank you that your kingdom peace is not passive. It's not just about being peaceful. It's faith-filled and not fear-filled. Father, thank you that it's relational and intimate and helps us develop trust. Father, thank you that it's effective in the times of deepest uncertainty and enables us to overcome against the greatest adversities. Father, thank you that your peace in our lives equips us to be servants of you, the living God, enables us to fight through the toughest times. It's good for our physical and mental health as it opposes anxiety and stress and helps us to keep our sanity at times, especially during these times that we've gone through. When we focus on doing the right thing, Lord, we know that sometimes we can forget that you're speaking to us about doing the next thing And it's the next thing that you speak to us, which is always the best thing. We just don't want to rush off, Lord, as um, the things that you will have spoken to us about, either for ourselves this morning or for others. We don't want them to get lost in, in, in a moment, but we want them to resonate in our lives. Whatever we face in the days and weeks ahead, let's remember that nothing you experience is uncertain to God. He was at work in your past and he's here in your present and he holds your future. So come on, let's hold fast to his promises and trust that he is good. Jesus says, I am leaving you with a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give. So don't be troubled or afraid. When you live in kingdom peace, you take kingdom peace with you wherever you are. Father, would you just stir up your peace over our lives now, Lord? Would you bring your healing upon the wounds of our scarred hearts and minds? Would you bring your healing on the physical ailments of our bodies? Father, in our marriages and relationships, Father, where we've felt rejected or misunderstood, Father, would you come and pour out your peace on us like like the woman who poured perfume on Jesus' feet, like, like balm, soothing and aromatic, that we would not give up on our friendships and relationships, even though we may have felt rejected. That, Father, one more time we would say, Father, do in us what we know that we cannot do so that we can be for others someone who is a friend, someone who if it's your husband or wife, is not just my friend, but my husband or wife, the parent of my children, where the stresses and strains of of marriage be at peace, where you feel like giving up and throwing the towel in, and saying, I just need to walk away. Uh, And I did have a word for a a lady that felt that she got to that place, I don't know whether you're in the room or, or you're watching that, that you felt, you know, you just can't go on 
anymore and your marriage is just like, I can't do it anymore. I've just got to get out of this. I feel, I feel trapped. It's not, because, uh, it's not because of physical abuse. That's a completely different thing. You need to get advice about that. You may need to walk out from that situation. But this is about just uh, being misunderstood, just feeling uh, that you're alone. And I just feel that God just wants to pour his love upon you and his peace and say, connect with me one more time. Let me draw close to you. Let me be intimate with you and it will change your perspective. And you'll be able to show a love that will just blow your partner away. That he won't be able to resist who you are in the way that you are because so much of the presence of God is in you. And that's simply all that I want, really wanted to say was that that's who God wants to be in us so that we can be for others the same as what he wants to be for us.